I mean, it's pretty common to say that if you aren't growing, you're dying. And I think that's really wrong. I think it's ethically wrong. But you could say if you're not learning, you're dying. That I do believe, right? That you have to be constantly curious. We've all been in the creative business for more than 20 years and love almost everything about it. But we have to admit, there are times when it's a shit show. In this podcast, we're going to talk about the ups and downs of the design and marketing business and share ideas and support that get us through the day. And sometimes we'll just shoot the shit. So welcome to the Creative Shit Show. Hey guys, super pumped today to have with us probably someone that needs no introduction in our creative arena, but we are pleased to bring on the show David Baker, uh, author, speaker, advisor to entrepreneurial creatives worldwide. He's written five books, advised 900 plus firms, keynoted conferences in 30 plus countries, and his work has been discussed in dozens of international publications. The New York Times has referred to him as the expert's expert, but he also co-hosts the most listened to podcast in the creative services field, of course, the two Bobs podcast. Thank you for being here with us, David. Thank you for having me. I shouldn't say the most listened to podcast, right? Because that's going to hurt your feelings. Uh, but Nah. <laughs> we know where we, we love live. your podcast. We like your podcast more than ours, but that's we're very <laughs> We're very realistic, so we're good. <laughs> we set the bar low, so all we have to do is, you know, step over it. Right. <laughs> as long as at least one family member is listening to your podcast, you'll keep doing it. That's right. You got to start somewhere, right? But speaking of, you know, where uh, where we come from, I, was, I think it'd be great to maybe share with our audience a little bit. I mean, we take it for granted because we're disciples of your newsletter and podcasts and um, other mediums that you use to communicate. But maybe uh, you could enlighten our audience a little bit about how you got to be the expert's expert and all of the other fantastic things that you do to help the creative community. Well, my educational journey to this work was completely unrelated. So I spent five years full-time in grad school studying um, anthropology and linguistics. But in grad school, I was looking at the advertising in our local community and I thought, oh, this sucks. Like, how hard could it be? I could probably do better. Ended up, so that was a very pretentious sort of a start. And then I ran a firm for I think it was five or six years, we had 16 people at our max and really loved the work. I was sort of the copywriter and the photographer in the group and then running the place. But it was a very average firm. And one of the places I went to to get helpful information was a publication called Creative Business at the time. It's not around anymore. So Cam asked me if I would be willing to write some articles on some subjects where he wasn't as comfortable. And so I started doing that. And then he was doing seminars and he couldn't get to all of them. So he said, okay, I want to do seminars in all these cities. I'll give the boring cities to David and he can <laughs> use my notes. So I was in St. Louis and I won't name all the rest of them. But uh, it, it just got me really interested in the business side of things. And I discovered that this is a really important point that just hit me. Like I didn't see any connection between somebody's creative ability and their success in business, but I saw a lot of correlation between their success in business and running things like they should be run. And so mm -hmm. that took over my life very, very quickly. It was sort of a uh, you know, it was just to throw something at the wall and see if it sticks. And I was 
I put a shingle up, actually Cam put a shingle up for me in his newsletter and said, just send me 10% of everything you make. And I thought, okay, I didn't think anything would come of it, but firms started calling and it just launched a career almost overnight. So that was 28 years ago, something like that. And since then, I've been working with lots of firms and lots of countries and just love what I do. Incredible. Yeah, I saw you years ago, early on, multiple times. And I know I went to your uh, Mind Your Own Business sessions within how I think. You've always been the uh, the voice in my head saying, you know. Don't do that, Karen. Don't do it. I mean, stupid and, you know, that type of thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You do that, you're going to end up like Justin. You do that, Karen, you're going to end up like Justin. (laughs) Listen, damn it, David, you beat me to the punch. I was about to zing you right there. And of course you got me there. There you Um, go. I mean, really, it has been, you have been a voice. I have repeated your words multiple times over the years to people. She just did it to me earlier today. I was like, are you tapping? She's like, no, I'm just telling you like it is. I'm like, oh. Oh, I I need to introduce you to my wife because she doesn't think as highly of me as you do. That's My favorite one is, was... And I've repeated it a million times and I try to live by it is, you know, don't work for people that are spending their own money. Mm, Right, right, right. Yeah, Yeah. because they're too tight with it. Right. Yep. Oh, you know, I forgot to put my really cool glasses on. Um, Oh, these are made out of titanium and wood and they're expensive and generally worthless because when you sweat in them, uh, it damages them. So I'm going to put them on just for you. Nice. Oh, We're not making you sweat enough. We need to like put him on the Let's hot see. seat. Well, I was I was just gonna say, David, you're not that cool, but then you put those glasses on, and there you go. Yeah, and I, I passed right them. There. I slithered right across the, the low bar. Yeah, Where you know, located. Uh, I I have to say that, and you and I have talked about this in the past. That I'm a great admirer and a and a great arguer with you, uh, if, if that's the right term. I'm gonna just join Jamie's lot of Bader. Yeah. Um, And here's the thing, David, I'm serious. And um, what I absolutely adore about you is that you will have those conversations and you will, you will give like just great feedback. And whether I agree with you or or not, I always walk away smarter and better for it. So Mm. I really appreciate that um, about you. And I think um, I even told these guys and they already were, but I was like, if you're not reading David's newsletters, man, you're missing out because every single one of those freaking things i sit down and be like damn it am i doing that am i thinking that way <laughs> um and sometimes i'm like yeah i'm doing it but um i think that uh what you're putting out in the in the industry is, is really really powerful and beneficial and i just want to say that all jokes aside keep doing that thank you thank you there's a lot of really good advisors to this field which i am really proud about i didn't have a whole lot to do with it but when i started there was george johnson and tony micas and now there's 30 or 40 really great people advising firms on the business side of things so it's great to see this industry become more professional that's that's my primary goal yeah i really like that i mean it's hard for creatives to talk about money we talk about it all the time it's hard for for whatever reason, we just, I, I, I get really emotional. I, I probably shouldn't, but you know, I take it personally because it's my personal work, but mm-hmm. it's really good to separate yourself a little bit and just get more business minded, you know, when you're dealing with clients and the creative, the fun stuff comes after you get the approvals. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. Right. 
for years, David, you've built businesses consulting with medium to large creative firms. But I'm really curious about what advice that you would give to smaller or independent creatives that are making a living. I've been doing this on my own 30 years now, and I'm always wondering what should I be doing differently? Mm, yeah. Well, the advice I would give to a smaller firm is definitely different. For one thing, there's sort of this inverse relationship between the size of your firm and the need for a very specific either business strategy or positioning or point of view. Because to a client, there's, you know, if, if you're going to match the client size to the firm size, so we're going to have, so you as a one person shop, you're going to naturally match up with smaller firms. You're going to face some unique pressures because you're going to be working with people who are who demand more service, probably. Mm -hmm. They're probably tighter from a budget standpoint. Mm -hmm. And then on the flip side of that, you're going to lose out to some of the larger clients that your larger competitors could work with because part of the decision matrix they use in deciding on what sort of a firm is, does this firm have a deep enough bench? If something happens to Karen, will there be 23 people behind her that can keep doing the work, right? Right. So... That is pretty important. Uh, but uh, the things that don't change, like your ability to make money and also your ability to make a difference, doesn't, that's not a scaling question at all. I, I don't mm -hmm. think if you decide to be smaller as a firm, that does not necessarily bring with it a requirement that you're going to make less money. I just don't believe that at all. I think being a smaller firm versus a bigger firm is primarily around one key choice you have to make. And that is, do you want to do the work or do you want to manage the people who do the work? And mm -hmm. the mistake that people make is they grow without changing that equation. They grow and they don't embrace what comes with growth and that's managing people. And so, and they stick in the work um, consistently and the people are left unmanaged and that's sort of a disaster. So I think it's a very, it's not an ethical decision. It's not a decision about money. It's a decision about what you want to do as a person. You want to be close right. to the work or managing people. Yeah. Yeah. Jamie and I have recently partnered up for the last two years and that's made a huge difference as far as mm. port and the type of projects that we can take on. Right. Um, yeah, there's reasons. The number one reason, personally, I have stayed the way I am, is that freedom to do basically whatever I want, not manage people. And I love doing the work. Mm -hmm. Oh, she manages me. Are you I kidding expect me? I manage Jamie. I'm really good. <laughs> I, I'm pretty good at managing Partners. Jamie and I manage, manage clients. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, you manage us too. I mean, let's be honest. Oh, and I manage this crew. No, she time. mothers you. There's a big difference. <laughs> I need it. I mother need it. Hen for sure. Yeah. She is the mother hen for sure. Oh my gosh. What a great answer. I think, you yeah, know, it's so great. beneficial for, the, we, you know, our audience, you know, from what we can see is, is made up of people who are definitely either looking to take that next step in their career or you know, take the launch to or the leap to entrepreneurialism or starting, you know, partnering with other people. And so it's just valuable to have, you know, someone in in your corner like that, you know, giving you that those little tidbits. So thank you, David. Yeah. What's Vaughn got to say about it? Um, well, that's exactly what you defined is exactly where I'm at. Um, but I struggle with that all the time between you know, should I farm this out and just art direct it or should I do it myself? And 
sometimes I do both, but it's that's always a struggle for me. And then trying to figure out, okay, how can I grow, but you know, not take on too much more overhead. I don't know. So um, I'm thankful that when I got into this business, I plugged into a small business course and the the guy who ran it used to be a VP at uh, Gallo Wine and Coca-Cola. And he kind of clued me in on everything I need to be doing business-wise. I mean, if I didn't have that, I would have been lost. So I everything you said really resonated with me. So I appreciate that. It's an interesting field because it's not a field that attracts external non-involved investors. So you don't see people saying, oh, design firm, that's a great business. I'm going to start one and I'm going to hire an executive to run it and I'll just cash the check. That doesn't happen. It sometimes happens at the much larger level, but not at firms like yours. And so you end up having people running these firms who are deep practitioners. And that brings with it all kinds of unique issues, you know. Um, and on top of that, whatever the specific training was, usually doesn't include anything around running your business at all. Yeah, so you're right. just learning on the job. And if you, so then, where do you learn from? Well, most people start working for somebody else and that person may or may not be a great business example, right? And then they go off and start mm -hmm. their own thing. And then they'll join a group of peers where uh, bad practices are traded every day and said that you should do this, right? Um, and you're learning from each other and it sort of becomes like intermarriage in Kentucky or, or if any of you are from... <laughs> If any of you are from Kentucky, then it's like intermarriage in Mississippi. It's one or the other, you know, <laughs> where the advice just gets worse and worse and worse. And you're just trading bad ideas. So it's a pretty unique field in that the people who are doing it love it. And then and then think about, too, not just the practitioner side of it, but think about the PM and the AM side of it, account management and project management. There, There's no training in college for that. So everybody doing a great right. job doing AM or PM is a failed something. They started somewhere else and, and somebody recognized how good they were at the AM or the PM side and they become they became that, which had very little to do with their, their training. So you have this really interesting field of people that either don't know business or failed at something and yet they have unique, really unique abilities. They're curious, they have powerful observation skills, they can simplify complex issues, and sometimes the work is so interesting that the money is sort of an afterthought for them. It's like, oh, you're paying me? What's this? This is great. What? This is a paycheck? And then they get, you know, they, they get their, they get a little older and maybe they have kids and they're thinking about college and how do, how am I going to pay for this? Or later they think, okay, I'm going to have to stop doing this at some point. What kind of retirement am I going to have? Am I going to be pushing a cart or am I going to have a home on a lake, you know? And all of a sudden the business things come into focus like they wouldn't have otherwise. I think as an industry, we're better off than we ever have been, but there's still some room to go for sure. Right. But I mean, you can learn everything you need to learn on Twitter, right, David? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Balanced, open eager openness for discussion. Twitter's amazing, right? Listicles, you know, all yeah. the all the Twitter bros out there giving us advice. How, how you can be successful as me. Year. Yeah. <laughs> Rent a car where the doors fold up and take a selfie of yourself in front of somebody else's house and, and talk about your success. This is what Justin does all the time. Of course. Yeah. We follow each other. He knows. Um, you know, from the AM PM side, you know, uh, David, you and I talked about this years ago. We actually have hybrid 
versions of that, right? So we have account managers that also have some creative ability, not design-wise, but let's say strategy or writing. And they also project manage some of those things too. So just because we're on a smaller side. And I think we're getting to the stage now where we need to separate that you know, capability a little bit more, which on one hand is exciting, but then also creates a whole other level of, okay, well then we need to start ratcheting up our sales, right? To be able to, mm-hmm. you know, afford, you know, that new reality. So I think this business is really fascinating is if you want to grow, right? I think, how do you feel about the fact that there just seems to be some pretty hardcore data on your specific size organization? And these are the things that you need to do on a normal basis, right? Like average sales and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That's something that you, I feel have dialed in. Is that fair to say? Yes, it is. Uh, I've worked with lots of single person firms, but probably the sweet spot for me is somewhere like between five and 50 people, something like that. And it can vary. I've worked for thousand person firms, but all of the firms are independent in that I will never work with a, a firm that's a part of a holding company. And the reason is because you folks as principals, yeah, maybe you're not making the right decision all the time, but you're you're generally not afraid of making a decision. And I don't have to go through all kinds of committees. I can just make an argument for you and you can either accept it or not, and then just make a decision. That's one of the things of many things I love about this field is that you folks are not afraid of change and, and you're not afraid uh, to learn how things could be better, right? Um, either mm-hmm. from me or other people or from your peers. Yeah, I or think whatever. we embrace that for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Curious. Yeah. Yeah. Constant learners. Right. I mean, it's pretty common to say that if you aren't growing, you're dying. And I think that's really wrong. I think it's ethically wrong. But you could say if you're not learning, you're dying. That I do believe, right? That you have to I be agree. constantly curious. Yeah. But you don't have to, like, I'm a, I was one person for 27 years. Now I've added a half a person. So I'm one and a half people. And if I, <laughs> if I'm off my medication, I'm about four people. <laughs> but normally it's like, one and a half. Yeah. But your dog is the cutest co worker ever. Your dog is so cute. Oh my God. The version of David off his meds is my favorite social media version of you. So please do that more. <laughs> Twitter is my disposable personality. In case I get canceled, I want it, the wall to stop right there at Twitter and not the rest of my life. Nice. Remember me this way. <laughs> you obviously have experience running your own agency, and I'm sure you draw a lot from that, and you uh, help a lot of creative business uh, owners with your books, and you're obviously an expert influencer. But when you have questions about something yourself, who do you turn to? for advice or what books have you read that have kind of transformed your own thinking or made it like you read something and it totally changed the way you think about, about Mm. this topic. Yeah. I I'll admit that I don't read many books now. I write them, but I don't read them. Most books really bore me. I probably shouldn't say that, but in the early years, there were some very instrumental books for me, like the whole Reese and Trout stuff on positioning, the immutable laws of marketing. I remember reading that stuff and realizing, oh my God, this is this simplifies something. This helps me understand. It was almost like a model of thinking. That was very influential. And then I think Michael Gerber's early work on the e-myth, just understanding that uh, you folks and me, I'm in that group too. We were technicians who suffered an entrepreneurial seizure. And thus yep. you can extant, expand that in so many ways and say, like, 
knowing how to loving how to ride bikes and loving that whole scene is very different than running a bike shop. And it's so anyway, that really opened up some things for me. And then the people that have been influential, honestly, I don't pay too much attention to this industry itself. I, I prefer learning from adjacent industries. And so the rest of the, uh, of the professional services side of things. So law firms, accountants, engineers, architects, and so on, uh, medical doctors. I love figuring out what they are doing well and seeing if it can be adapted and brought into our world. And then I also love learning from other countries as well. So it's just when I see something like if I'm in the car, I'm not listening to the radio, I'm listening to podcasts and almost all the podcasts I listen to are economics in one form or another, because I find it really fascinating. And I'm thinking, ah, like in a typical podcast episode that I'm listening to, I'm going to get two ideas for an article and one of them will be worthless by the next day. I'll realize that I don't even know what I was thinking. And then the other one was like, oh, that's a, there's a seed of something there. So almost all of the insight I develop comes from adjacent industries, not from this industry. That's what really fascinates me. And I don't know, like doing the podcast with Blair, the Two Bobs podcast forces me to think and articulate a little bit more deeply what where my mind is going. So Blair has definitely been super influential in terms of helping me think through models and so on too. That, that, that's fascinating. It's like, I, I, I know RSS feeds aren't a big thing now, but I still have an app where I pull in all these different resources and right. I'd say 90% of them are outside of design just because I found when I read on stuff like physics or archaeology or whatever, it always makes me think about something that's tangible to what I do. And I've always found ways to kind of draw from that. And the fun part about it it's kind of like I discovered I could hack my mind. If I start scrolling through the RSS feeds, I'll see something and my mind thinks, oh, was that this? And I click into it and it was nothing like that. But I would have never thought that unless I did that. And mm -hmm. so okay. I, I kind of get the principle you're talking about. I think that's really important, especially in context of business. Why not take advice from those who've you know been successful at building billion dollar industries and apply the same principles at a smaller level. Right. I also have the advantage of seeing inside lots of firms. So yeah. I'll, I'll learn how a firm is doing this. And it's so interesting. I've never seen this before. It's like, Oh, I see why they did it. And I see the impact it has on their business. And one of the things that I love the most about what I do is that I'm not just seeing the inside of a business, but I'm able to draw some sort of a correlation between how they run their business and the financial performance of the firm because mm -hmm. I have access to the financials as well. So right. I can validate some ideas and, and see whether they're really impactful or not. Do you ever get involved with like in-house marketing or corporate, you know, teams like that, corporate design teams or corporate creative teams? I used to do a lot of that work and I've developed some models uh, from that space. I did tons of work for Toyota and Whole Foods and Hallmark and Verizon and couple consulting companies, about 30 of them. Mm -hmm. I don't do any of that anymore. I just lost complete patience. I'll just honestly, uh, between you, 
four and me and thousands of listeners who shouldn't hear this, I would, I'd be consulting with one of these firms and I'd walk into the parking lot to my rental car at the end of the day, shaking my head and thinking, how in the world did we become the most powerful economic nation in history with these boobs running this stuff? Like (laughs) I just, so I don't, I don't work with them anymore. I only work with the small independent firms. Um, It's not that they're not good people doing good work, but change is so agonizing oh, and slow. Yeah. I just, I can't do it anymore. So I, no, yeah, it's I a don't. little, it, it takes a piece of your soul every time you leave right. the building. Right. <laughs> I'm curious. Have you ever read the book, the monster at Jekyll Island? No, I haven't. It's all about like how the, the, basically the, the federal bank was set up and, and the dollar became the monetary standard for the world. And Every time I hear a comment like like you said, I, I always go, I'm amazed that they convince the world to use the dollar as the standard. And mm-hmm. it, it just seems like one of the biggest, like, I don't know. It, it just seems yeah. like, well, that's really convenient. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good for us. Yeah. Like yeah. Uh, orbiting the giant hairball. That whole, yeah. that, that was a really interesting look at the inside of companies. Yeah, it is a pretty brand, amazing brand book. Yeah. yeah. Well, David, let's, let's talk about your podcast a little bit. And before we do, um, <clears throat> could you share a little bit about who Blair is and, and, you know, why he's your partner on this? Because I think you guys are a perfect complement to each other and have, and each of you have two distinct perspectives yet, you know, are uh, intertwined with, uh, you know, your viewpoint on that. Sure. So Blair is in a work release program. He's back in jail on the weekends, but on Thursday they let him out to record with me. No, he is. Uh, so Blair ends runs win without pitching. I have about a half dozen people. They do sales training for this same space that I serve. So it's not something that I do. They also do a lot of work with pricing. I met Blair 20 years ago at an MYLB actually invited him to speak. And we've done a bunch of events together and about five and a half years ago, he came to me and said, hey, why don't we do a podcast together? Because we were stopping something else we were doing together and we still liked collaborating. I didn't think it would go anywhere, but I thought it'd be fun to do something with him. So it comes out every other Wednesday. It's uh, really widely listened to. Um, we just we don't have any guests. We don't interview anybody. It's just we take turns where I say, hey, it's my turn. Here's a topic. Here's a one-page outline. Let's talk about this. And then he interviews me and then we flip around. So we just recorded one on models everywhere just uh, an hour before I got here. So he works uh, with the same clients that I do from Canada. And uh, we've been friends and also collaborators in many different ways. I love it. So when he's not in prison, Mm -hmm. um, can you highlight? No, I'm just kidding. So your your, uh, episodes are great. And we'll put a, a link in our show notes. But I have to get your perspective on your parody episodes, which by the way, <laughs> oh my gosh, going down the Twitter hole on those was oh my gosh. my favorite. I think I literally spent like three hours uh, looking at uh, people's comments on that and LinkedIn. But um, can you talk about your first one and, and you know, you know how that came about? Yeah. Well, our best and worst ideas are usually Blair's and this was his as well. So he said, <laughs> why don't we do a parody? And I think the first one was on uh, proposals, secrets yeah. to the killer proposal. That's right? the one that yeah. I listened to. And uh, I said, well, shouldn't we tell people that this is a parody? And he says, no, we're not going to, never. We're just <laughs> not tell people it's a parody. So so he just sent me the notes and we just recorded it. And the way we record is we never 
we never take a second stab at anything. It's just whatever it is, it is. So it was, we made it all up on the fly in the first take and, and uh, just published it without a note. And the problem came up right after that because people are so, some people listen to it with skepticism like they should. And other people's like, they just, they just hang on every word. So they're taking all kinds of notes and, and even, you know, they were like, I forget a dozen ideas that were really critical to make a killer proposal. And one of them, I mean, a lot of them were super silly. One of them was you need to staple a hundred dollar bills between the pages to make your proposal more likely to be accepted. And I'm thinking, surely if, if we're fooling people by this point in the episode, that will be the clue that this is a parody, but it yeah. wasn't to people like, and we'd get, it was you just guys crazy. Stayed in character, yeah. though. I mean, well, I remember guys, this is the, this, the, the bit that you guys did and how committed you were to it was my favorite because I remember I was like, Oh, this is going to be a great episode. I'd love to see what Blair does. And then your very first example, I can't remember what it was. I'm like, this doesn't seem like right. the one, the longest page. It has to be a yeah. hundred pages. It should be a hundred pages or something someone, like that. Yeah. One of you guys asked like, what's the ideal length of a proposal? And the, to what Karen's saying, one of you guys go as long as possible. The more yeah, pages, right. the better. And threw a bunch of crap in there just to show how hard you've worked. And I started just dying laughing. And then I thought to myself, I wonder if people think he's serious. Well, some people did. And then we we didn't do ourselves a favor. We just let that play out and <laughs> and didn't correct them. And so a few people were actually pretty embarrassed that they had bought the whole thing, hook, line, and sinker. And then I forget what the second one was. Oh, that was on the website. Yeah, that's where I came up with the outline for that. And then we talked about secrets to your killer website, which was really bad. I mean, stuff like, I remember saying at the beginning, you need to not optimize the speed of your website. I mean, there's this, you really need it to move slowly because then people are forced to look at it more carefully. And it's like, surely people don't think I'm serious here. But see, the thing, the fact is, you, so, when you say on the back end, after you say that, so people, you know, who maybe read slowly can see it. Some people I can see like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> when it's an obvious bit. Yeah. Oh, man. I don't know. It killed me. I mean, I would just, I feel bad for some of the people, but at the same time, it's like, you know, we need to lighten up a little bit. The world has gotten really serious and not that it shouldn't, but I mean, periodically, it's okay to just not take yourself so seriously. You know? We don't have another one planned. I don't know if we'll do another one or not. This is it. it. This mixed is the one. Maybe this is I it. don't know. Doing yeah. Secrets of a Killer logo would be amazing. But um, <laughs> oh, uh, oh, so God. before we transfer to some of your you know other amazing stuff going on, how has the podcast enhanced your business or just you individually as a business business leader? So I didn't change anything I was doing. Uh, the, the podcast was additive. So I'm still doing my weekly emails and everything, but it's probably 80% of every prospect that I speak with uh, has heard of the, has listened to the podcast very regularly. So it's had a massive impact on my business way more impact than I ever envisioned. And it's also something that I enjoy doing. I really do enjoy it. I listen to every episode once it comes out after it's edited and published and I enjoy it. I keep thinking of things. Oh, I should have said this there or something, but I, I think it's funny. It's, uh, I wish it was a little shorter. I think we could probably, but it's just hard to get it shorter. I like the amount of chit chat where I think there ought to be a little bit of chit chat at the beginning. And then I think you ought to dive right into things. Um, but it's to answer your question, it's been hugely impactful, more impactful than most anything except maybe MYOB. That was, mm -hmm. and I remember starting that and inviting all of my 
competitors to speak and people were thinking I was crazy. It's like, no, no, this will work fine. That put my name on the map. And then I think the podcast was the other really big thing. So let's talk about MYOB since you brought it up and we've talked, we've mentioned it a couple of times just for the audience. Maybe we can just, you know, identify what that is. And then I, I personally am excited because I live outside of Atlanta and I know you're doing some resurrections and um, Atlanta's, I think your destination in October. Right. Um, so I'm, yeah, definitely going to come by and see you there. Yeah. I'm so excited. It's uh, October 24 to 26, uh, 150 people. We're going to limit it to, uh, I've got five keynotes, nine breakouts. There'll be a live band. There'll be open bar both nights. Um, that was for Karen's sake. I mean, that, that's what got me. I was like, oh, cool. Maybe I have to get a hotel. I know. I'm like, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> I tried to tell you. I'm like, come on down. Private Man. concert, uh, a group there, local, some really great, you know, like the first night will be kicked off by the author of um, Profit First pretty well-known book. Yeah. So yeah, I'm super, super excited. I think people are ready to get back together again, you know, it, apart from the, the actual programming, I think they just want to get back together. again. So, right. Yeah. But I yeah. think that entrepreneurs are so open to business coaching now. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's become a standard versus a luxury for the few. Right. I think you're right. Why, why is that? I don't know. I don't know why, but it's definitely true. I think that you just have to, you know, things are changing so fast mm. and we have to stay on top of things. Mm -hmm. I know I have a, a sales coach that I've worked with for years. He's just brought so much to my way of thinking. And I've had multiple coaches over the years because of that. And it's, it, there's that, like we talked about, there's that whole sense of curiosity, but it's also just keeping on your game. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that you were early on with the mind your own business, you know, that was yeah. now it's something that everybody as entrepreneurs, we build that budget into our um, mm -hmm. into our annual plan, basically, because we know we need it. And there's no shame. It. Like we may have somebody help us with workout strategy or diet strategy or right. business strategy or how to, how to tame our wild kid strategy kind of stuff. Yeah. So why not? Why not business strategy too? Absolutely. Yeah. And you're, I mean, I'm excited. And then I saw Bryn Muth was going to be there. Am I right? She is. The, I was thrilled to see that. She's the MC. She's the person I worked with for so many years. She's the, she's the editor of my books. Wonderful. I love Bryn. I was like, that was my first call. It's like, Bryn, can you be here? And I will get the old team back together. And who That's are fantastic. some of the other speakers that you are going to bring in? So uh, Shannon from uh, When Without Pitching. Blair's going to be in Europe, so he can't speak. So uh, the managing director there, Shannon Will. Um, Mark O'Brien from Newfangled. Philip Morgan from Philip Morgan Consulting. Derek Walker, who run, runs Brown & Browner in uh, Columbia, South Carolina that uh, really notable agency that's won so many awards. Uh, the guy who's behind um, the really ironic social media stuff, um, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting his name right now, uh, but has done like all the um stuff. Um, Nate, forget his last name right now. He's been interviewed on all kinds of huge podcasts and he's going to be talking about doing social media for clients and the awesome. trouble that he's gotten into and stayed out of and so on. <laughs> Um, we have a PhD woman who's speaking on decision science and how that impacts your thinking at the firm. Um, we have the former 
MD of Second City in Chicago. Oh, you know, wow. Comedy group. He's going to be mm -hmm. talking about your personal brand and how to communicate as an individual. And he's really good at that. Try, so then fun. we have somebody coming over from the UK who's going to talk about account management. What else do we have? I'm sure I'm leaving out several people. Oh, uh, Jonathan Stark on pricing. He's mm -hmm. fantastic. Very good. Yeah. So lots of really, really good content and really compressed. So the whole thing starts on a Monday night. So you can fly in Monday morning. It ends at noon on Wednesday. So you can fly home. So you're only, you're only gone two nights. That's the whole idea too. Seems like a creative shit show reunion opportunity. Just saying, you know, yeah. <laughs> right. Absolutely. I 100 agree. I just wanted to say, I have, I have one question. It just, I'm going to forget this if I don't ask it now. Okay. Um, this this you, is already a, a very strange introduction to a question. Sorry. <laughs> so I'm going to, I want to read a quote by Paul Rand and I just want to get your take on it and what you okay. think about it. Okay. Um, it popped in my head as you were, you were talking. And so I figured it would be cool to get your insight. His quote is uh, the public is more familiar with bad design than good design. It is, in effect, conditioned to prefer bad design because that is what it lives with. The new becomes threatening, the old reassuring. I'm just curious what your take would be on that quote. Hmm. I think it's very interesting concept. I don't, the first thing I thought of was, okay, think of Walmart. Would, would everything about Walmart be considered shit design? But then how do you... How do you square that with the fact that they're one of the most profitable, most, you know, everywhere entities on the planet or mm -hmm. Amazon? I don't think anybody would look at Amazon's website and say that is great design, but yet it's a part of one of the most powerful, fastest growing entities. So I don't, I don't even know what good or bad design is, except that I think sometimes we define good design more aesthetically than whether it actually works. And I'm right. not an expert on that. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think functional design is making a bit of a resurgence and I'm seeing a lot of people talking about simplifying your messaging and stop over designing things and stop overthinking things. And, you know, I mean, one of the greatest pieces of advice I heard recently was just, you know, save a chair for your client at every meeting. I mean, for your uh, your ideal customer at every meeting, because, mm. you know, I, I think, you know, people have a tendency to drink their own Kool-Aid and design for what they think they like. And Karen and I have, you know, come across this several times where someone will be, oh, I, I have no reason why they picked the particular design that we presented to them other than they just like it. Mm -hmm. But then we're like, yeah, but or they want to change a certain color and you're like, but why does that matter? You know, does your customer want that or do you just like it? You know? And mm -hmm. I think a lot of people don't understand good design. And well, so they I, just, I they, you got to design to them. I think Paul Rand's context was aesthetically speaking. And, but you know, Google had a lousy brand mark for years, but they became a billion dollar company. So it, um, it doesn't necessarily affect their, profitability or their success. And I think that applies to a small business too. I just think um, personally, you should have, both should be done well, regardless if you're trying to do it to make them more successful. If they're not successful already, a new logo is not going to do anything. Right. So, mm -hmm. right. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think both ideally would, would exist. And, 
and I would say even the brands we talked about, as they grew in popularity, they realized the the power of their brand and they've tried to incrementally make it better. Mm-hmm. You know, I know this is a debate we have all, uh, you know, um, <laughs> all the time at design conferences that it probably doesn't really make matter. But, you know, if you look at those organizations that are, you know, brand centric, understand the power of their brand, they far, far outperform other companies in general. But um, I think Rand was just trying to say that, you know, um, design in general can can get better. Um, and as that gets better, it'll kind of, you know, rise the tide and all boats go with it or whatever that saying is. Couldn't remember, yeah. but um, there you go. Crushing it today. That was for Dave. <laughs> I know what quote you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> A rising so, tide raises all boats. There you there go. There we go, I mean, David. And, this David leads into David. another question. That I'm, tired of, I'm tired of carrying this entire conversation. <laughs> <laughs> it's why we invited you. Right. When you do consult with firms, what is the discussion between the balance of the success of the program versus the aesthetics of the the project? Well, you know, it's pretty common to list some of the work that you've done as a firm, but sometimes these firms are claiming credit for great success when it really had very little to do with the design itself, right? So it's a little hard to really sort that out. I don't think of design as primarily an aesthetic function. I think of design as more around uh, organization and clarifying. That to me is what design is. It's not visual. And also clarifying it so that when you present a choice to a consumer, it's a clearer choice with clearer implications and so on. And design Mm -hmm. firms, pure design firms are probably only 15% of my work. The rest would be like PR or strategy firms or software Mm -hmm. engineering firms. And, and that, you know, the role of design in those, those worlds is quite different. You can see, like, I think design is woven deeply into UI and UX, but it's woven into those two practices very differently. Mm-hmm. And mostly one of them is visual and the other is not. So, yeah, I don't, it's, it's pretty interesting to see. I, I, I'm, I feel really grateful that the people that I work with are really interesting people. There's just something about the design mind to me that, where people see different things, they have really interesting senses of humor. Um, they they can organize information and see patterns, and so I I just feel it, I just chose this field by luck, honestly, and I'm just so grateful that I can be a part of it all the time because the people I get to work with are really fun people. I love it. Yes, we are. You're, David, <laughs> David, you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> He wasn't talking to you. <laughs> it felt personal, but it wasn't. Yeah, none of you have been clients. Like, so all this all this praise is a little empty. <laughs> hey, we subscribe to all of it, though. Yeah, yeah that's, how we, that's how we roll. The freeloaders. <laughs> hey, David, before, before we go, I know we've enjoyed our time with you, but I'd be remiss if I don't talk to you. Just, you know, have you got updates on uh books or what have you been up to authoring wise uh it's been a long time since my last book the business of expertise came out almost five years which is way too long uh so the sixth book it's called tradecraft and it's about the inside of a consulting business uh not my business but what what consulting should 
how it should be done called Tradecraft. That uh, is at the design firm right now. So it'll come out later this year. I'm starting to work on my seventh book now. I don't, I haven't decided on the title or outlined it, but uh, to me, writing is sort of how I stay alive. So what keeps me sort of grinding is doing, uh, by grinding, I mean, and that in a positive way is doing the weekly emails, which are, you know, 800 or 1200 words or something like that. And I really love that. That kind of scratches that itch, but I do, I'm, I'm primarily an author who also does consulting. I'm really not the other way around. So the, the writing is, is what keeps me who I am. So, um, I'm really excited for this next book to come out. It's not going to be, it's going to be very interesting to a much smaller group of people, but that's okay. I just kind of needed to write it. Mm -hmm. I love it. I'm so excited. It sounds super intriguing. We appreciate your overall commitment to our industry and you've made it better and you've definitely well, you. made my career better because of it. So I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Never thank stop you. shit posting on social media because we need it. <laughs> <laughs> I live for it. Thanks for being with us. We are really pleased to have you here. Thank you, David. See you, David. Bye, Thanks. Guys.